In December of 1945, five planes launched from the coast of Florida. They were never seen again. They were five torpedo bombers that flew from a naval air station located in Fort Lauderdale to do a training exercise. Collectively called Flight 19, the five planes carried 14 men, three per plane except for one plane that only carried two. These pilots had fought in World War II, they had plenty of flight experience, but something that day went wrong. Their navigation equipment acted up, and a storm hit soon after. A pilot from the flight is quoted as saying, I don't know where we are, end quote. The radio transmissions grew increasingly dire as the pilots couldn't figure out which direction they were flying or what they were flying over. Islands and coasts were confused for one another, and every plan to bring them home safe got them more turned around. Fuel started to dwindle, and the radio messages indicated they were drifting further out to sea. Soon, their communication ended entirely. A search was sent out which immediately resulted in another plane going missing. Hundreds of boats scrambled the water for days looking for answers, anything to sort out what had gone wrong, but no answer came. Nearly 80 years later, there is still no explanation as to what happened out here on Flight 19. People, of course, have speculated. They say there's things out there in the water. Things below the surface that no one can imagine, or things far above the surface that use this spot of ocean to take things from our world. In the depths beyond where light can reach, the ocean contains creatures that are alien to us, and far beyond the stars is an entirely different type of alien altogether. No matter where in the world you are, mysteries arise from the depths of our seas, from the darkness of our stars, dating back thousands of years. The earliest sailors had superstitions that remained for generations as the ships switched from sails to steam. The stories of sirens and kraken, of ghost ships and reborn sailors, what to do and what not to do to keep your sanity out on the open ocean with only darkness below and darkness above. But as far as we know, these were only ever stories. No mermaids have washed up on our shores, no ghost ships have stalked our moonlit waves, and no sailor has been reborn as a seagull as far as we know. But in North America, perhaps the region of the ocean that has garnered the most myth and provoked the most fear is just off the coast of Florida, stretching east deep into the Atlantic Ocean. It begins in Miami, then goes southeast to Puerto Rico, and then north up to the island of Bermuda. This was the exact region of ocean that Christopher Columbus passed through 500 or so years ago on his way to what he called the New World. But this region is not known for that trip. It is known for its apparent supernatural dangers. This is the unknowable vortex, the Bermuda Triangle. Per Britannica, the Bermuda Triangle has claimed, quote, more than 50 ships and 20 airplanes, end quote. The myths have arisen over this region for decades. Stories of abandoned boats, phantom messages from ships in distress, airplanes passing through and never being seen again, and so much more. Because of these frequent disappearances, the human mind does what it always does. It tries to fill in the blanks. But instead of leaning towards logic, what arose was more fanciful explanations. Here is a list compiled by NOAA. They say the explanations of the Bermuda Triangle include, quote, extraterrestrials capturing humans for study, the influence of the lost continent of Atlantis, vortices that suck objects into other dimensions, and other whimsical ideas, end quote. Some of the less absurd explanations include a rare oceanic phenomena called rogue waves, where sudden surges of ocean water burst up from the ocean and can wipe out anything in their path. 
Due to the frequent turmoil of storms in the tropics, another theory suggested is that the storms converge in the Bermuda Triangle, making it a rough trip whether by air or by sea, almost like this is a collision point for storms in the ocean. Or, perhaps, is there magnetic interference that affects flight controls and compasses in this region, making the instruments lose their way out in this one specific spot of ocean? Each story supports a different theory, at least one of the practical theories. But the myth of the Bermuda Triangle, or as it's sometimes called, the Devil's Triangle, is not that old. Though the flights and ships were disappearing throughout the 20th century as far back as 100 years ago, the term Bermuda Triangle wasn't properly coined until 1964, when writer Vincent Gaddis wrote about the disappearances and attributed supernatural origins as the main culprit. Gaddis was heavily criticized during his lifetime for his frequent habit of writing about natural phenomena and calling them supernatural with little to no facts to back him up. No surprise then that he created the myth. In his article, titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle, Gaddis lays out incident after incident. Debris from a missing ship, debris from a pair of planes, a ship vanished into thin air. Flight 19 was an essential part of the article of the case that he was making, that that was a central event that supports the existence of the Bermuda Triangle. It's a place where things just seem to vanish. Gaddis, whenever he's talking about one of these missing cases, he usually says that they disappear without any poor weather and without a distress signal, which we know for a fact is not true. Very often there's poor weather and very often there are distress signals being sent out from the ships. Here's a quote from Gaddis. He says, quote, The Bermuda Triangle underlines the fact that despite swift wings and the voice of radio, we still have a world large enough so that men and their machines and ships can disappear without a trace. End quote. Gaddis collects story after story, disappearance after disappearance, even referring to the Bermuda Triangle as a hole in the sky. But even though he is suggesting an unknown or supernatural explanation, Gaddis seems to appreciate the mysterious nature of it, ending his article with, quote, the sea guards well her secrets, end quote. Even though he gives his own theories, he seems to agree there is no explanation for what's going on out here. Well, this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with someone who is unlocking those secrets that the sea apparently guards so well. And he has some, let's say, choice words about the phenomenon of the Bermuda Triangle. That's because my guest this week has found some apparently missing ships that apparently went missing in the Bermuda Triangle. The very same ships that disappeared into this apparent hole in the sky. Well, thanks to my guest this week's research and work underwater, we know for a fact that some ships that go missing in the Bermuda Triangle well, they wash up on the shores of Florida. Good evening, and welcome to Wait Fright Minutes. I am your haunted host, Nick D'Alessandro, and this week's feature presentation is an all-time classic, a favorite of mine, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Its relationship with Florida is unique, not an obvious one, but you will soon see that there are answers to reality on Florida shores that are presented in that film's fiction. We're talking this week to the explorer that solved a mystery that was a part of the plot of that very movie. I have to give you a warning before we get started, and it's a pretty good one. This week, our episode, you probably noticed, has a, a rare explicit tag on it. I very rarely have anybody swearing or saying any curse words on the show, but my guest at one moment in the show says BS. He says the actual word a couple times, and it's very, very funny and very, very important. So 
I understand if it's not your favorite thing here, you will hear it a little bit later on in the episode, but it's great because it's Michael completely calling out the myth of the Bermuda Triangle and you're, you're really going to enjoy it. So I will play that clip for you later on, but I also am going to play you a clip from Close Encounters of the Third Kind and, you know, I'm not going to edit out the pretty iconic swear that is in that scene as well. So don't worry, doesn't get too explicit. Just a few little swears throughout the story that I genuinely think are a part of what makes this episode such a distinct one. But let's hear our first clip, the opening scene of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. An airplane is discovered in the deserts of North America. Tell me something. What the hell is happening here? It's flight number 19. 19 what? It's that training mission from the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale. They were doing target runs on an old Hulk. Who flies crates like these anymore? No one. These planes were reported missing in 1945. Somehow, in the plot of this story, the UFOs snatched those ships out of the Bermuda Triangle and plopped them in the desert. But... There is another iconic moment in this movie where another vehicle is found in the desert after apparently being taken from the Bermuda Triangle by a UFO. Here is that clip. It begins in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's the coat of boxing. Why is it here? Beats the shit out of me. There in the sandy expanse is a giant ship with a visible name on it. The Cotopaxi. That is where our story begins, with the Cotopaxi and the man who discovered it. Let's meet that man. His name is Michael Barnett. Sure, my name is Michael Barnett. I'm a marine biologist and underwater explorer. So how did you get into this field? What what in your life led you to working in marine biology? And I mean, I love underwater explorer as a, as a, as a title. So can you tell me how you got into that field? Yeah, so I, I've always been fascinated with the ocean. Uh, obviously, as a kid growing up on Jacques Cousteau and Attenborough and all the, the PBS shows, I've always just knew I've been drawn to the ocean and and uh, want to pursue a, a career in marine biology. So I've been doing that for, geez, 30 some years now. I don't want to do the math, but uh, I've been working for NOAA uh, for the past 25 years in particular. Before that, I worked on Capitol Hill for an environmental uh, NGO uh worked actually worked for ted danson uh for american oceans campaign so uh so i've run the gamut i've also done field work so i've done the the research side i've done the the more lobbying political aspect of it and i've done the the regulatory side so i've kind of got the full spectrum of the issues uh that that uh we deal with on, in the marine environment and as far as that also it's just taken me i've always been fascinated with history in particular maritime history uh so i've you know, started diving in, in when I went to University of South Carolina, uh, got certified there and quickly just started researching about shipwrecks and diving in the rivers for fossils and just you name it. I just like being in the water and uh, getting wet, which is weird because as a kid, I was always kind of afraid of the water. But uh, when you learn to dive and you realize and you learn more about it, you, there, you learn there's nothing really to be afraid of uh, the more you learn. So it, it uh, was a great coping mechanism to, to learn to dive and get more comfortable. Uh, with the water and uh, obviously now pretty much a fish so <laughs> always diving listener i am sure a large portion of you all considered at one point being a marine biologist i'm sure you did i know i did well michael actually did it he, he followed the dream to its fruition what's diving like and how has the technology for it changed in his lifetime yeah i think it's probably the the, the path that thousands of people take every every year 
uh, to learn to dive. You know, this was just conventional scuba, uh, open circuit, aluminum 80 on your back and uh, learning in a pool. And Okay, I'm going to explain a little terminology here. I'm not a professional scuba diver. Maybe one day I will do some scuba diving. I'm a little nervous about it. But, you know, let's talk about it. There is open circuit diving. That's what Michael says. That is when you have oxygen that is coming in to allow you to breathe. And then when you breathe out, the oxygen comes out of the mask. It sort of bursts out into the water outside of you. So it's only going one way, right? But there is another type that's called closed circuit. There's also semi-closed circuit. And that is where you're essentially breathing in oxygen. And then when you breathe out... That is carbon dioxide that goes into a system and it recycles the air. So you have your own sort of contained unit of air. And that is actually what Michael's working with. I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. And I'll let him talk about how he is an explorer, right? But there's also people who do scuba diving for fun, recreationally. Well, he draws a little distinction between the two. Here is what he has to say. Diving, and the reason I say underwater explorers because I would define the difference between a diver and an underwater explorer. A diver is just more of a touristy type thing. They go dive, they look and see, whereas an explorer is actually looking for something, whether it's an answers, questions, uh, trying to find a new site, uh, trying to identify a shipwreck. Uh, and also I do a lot of cave diving, so we do mapping, we do exploration there. So it runs the gamut uh, there. So there, there is a, I think it's the difference between just being a, an avid, just sport diver and then to where your passion just over overtakes everything it, it becomes you know day in day out all you focus on is diving so there's a you know it's it comes a disease almost uh, when you get that into it uh, and my wife would say how much I spend on it too it, it uh, I think it uh, uh, echoes that way in that way as well but uh, but yeah and, and then I guess when I moved to Florida I got more into uh, had got more exposed to the blossoming technical diving community down here learned how to dive uh, mixed gas. I'd already been diving nitrox, which is just enriched uh, oxygen air. Uh, this, but trimix, you're adding helium to the mix, and that allows you to dive deeper because you're displacing the nitrogen that is narcotic the deeper you go, and also displaces the oxygen, which becomes toxic the deeper you go. Uh, and then that did that for quite a while and then I got exposed to rebreathers which are a closed circuit rebreather so it's imagine what astronauts wear where you're recycling your gas your fully closed system and you're as you're expired you're exhaling you're in a loop basically breathing gases in a loop and you're removing the carbon dioxide that you you're expelling and you're adding little bits of oxygen that you're metabolizing so it's a it's very efficient but obviously it's a little bit more complex uh, a lot more moving parts and things that uh, when things go wrong on a rebreather, a closed circuit rebreather, uh, it, it will try to kill you very subtly versus obviously if something goes bad on open circuit scuba, a hose ruptures or something like that, you know it immediately. Uh, so it's just a different skill set, but it's very, for what we're doing, the, the deeper dives we're doing and more remote and for logistics, the rebreather has been a, has been a incredible tool. Uh, not to mention also the cost of helium is probably when I first started doing this in, you know, probably 2000, 2001, a large volume uh, cylinder of helium from a welding su supply house was about $60. And now it's almost four or $500. So it is uh, gone through the roof. So if you're doing open circuit, the cost of diving has gotten just insane. So another aspect of it. And this isn't an occasional endeavor for Michael. No, he does this all the time. 
Yeah, it's uh, usually I try to dive every weekend I can. Uh, about this time of year, when it starts cooling off, it gets tolerable to be outside. I start focusing more on cave diving uh, because it's a lot more pleasant to go up to North Florida, put a dry suit on and uh, do that. Uh, I don't like doing that in June, July because you'll just the heat and the bugs and everything just is not fun. So usually I'm offshore wreck diving in the summer. Uh, this has been a weird year because uh, we've been filming season two of a, uh, a series for History Channel. So there's been a lot of filming associated around that topside, non-diving filming. It was all the, basically all the making the sausage, uh, so to speak, you know, that goes into making a show like this. So there's been a lot of diving, but also other, you know, team meetings and interviews and things like that. So it's, it's been a, an odd year. Uh, so not as much diving as I would like, I think. Michael has been too busy being on television to enjoy diving as much as he would like. That's the kind of guy he is. Sure, he's on TV, but there's just not enough diving for this guy, which is... <laughs> it likes his job. I don't know what to tell you. By the way, Michael's show, I just have to shout it out, is called The Bermuda Triangle Into Cursed Waters. It's on the History Channel. There's new episodes that are coming on November 14th. This is not an ad. I just am excited about it, and Michael is awesome, and, and I'm really excited to see what more of that show can uh, discover. I'm, I'm ex excited to see what he finds in The Bermuda Triangle. So I'll include a link so you can learn more about that show because it seems like a really interesting watch. But Michael being on this show is not the first time he's been on television. No, he's discovering stuff and it's being put on television all the time. It's been interesting. Uh, I've done numerous one-off shows. Uh, I've probably done before this series, which kicked off in 2021. Uh, I'd probably done another, you know, 12 or 13 shows, like one every other year or so. You'd get a call from a producer or something asking about is funny you should mention it you know the Bermuda Triangle is one that just keeps on you know <laughs> it's it's uh paid me very well over the years I guess so I can't complain about the Bermuda Triangle too much because it's a uh, it's a gift that keeps on giving but uh there's been a lot of shows on that and done other things across overseas and stuff so uh but this has been a series is a different animal uh because it's just a, it's not just a a weekend or a week it's like it's months of just in and out uh, on and off, just uh, chaos. Uh, so, uh, but it's been interesting. It's I've been a lot more exposed to the, the TV industry and what goes into it, and uh, kind of interesting, you know, digression from my normal, you know, work routine with Noah. So, sure. I mean, it's just very, very cool. But you know, you talk about the Bermuda Triangle. I guess my question for you is to switch to talking about the ship. Which, by the way, how do you say the how do you say the ship's name? The Cotopaxi. 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 It's exactly how, you know, sometimes when you see a word like that, it's so, you, you feel inclined to be like, maybe there's a trick to this. Maybe you say it in a different way than I realize, but I'm glad it's the way it is on the tin. So the Cotopaxi, let's talk about it. Our ghost ship today. Can you tell me a little bit about the ship itself? Sure. So the Cotopaxi was a freighter built in Ecores, Michigan, uh, the tail end of World War One. It was a, basically called a laker, and those are ships are built in the Great Lakes. Uh, it's about 252 feet in length, and that's basically the, the maximum length that could be built because they had to get through the Welland Canal to get out into the Atlantic. Uh, interesting little tidbit, it's you know called Cotopaxi, and a lot of people might be aware there's a, people think that's named after Cotopaxi, the volcano in Ecuador, which it wasn't really. It was actually named after Cotopaxi, Colorado. So back in the in World War One, there was a war bond drive, and each state that 
whatever town sold the most war bonds got the opportunity to, to basically name the ship after what they want to name it after. So they named it after Cotopaxi, Colorado, which is named after Cotopaxi. Named Ecuador. after, <laughs> you know, nice transitive property. Named for a town in Colorado, which was actually named for a volcano in Ecuador. Now the ship bears that very same name. It was launched in 1918 as a bulk carrier ship built in Michigan. It sailed for seven years, mostly going from Cuba to America, but then it would also occasionally go down to South America, basically everywhere along that Eastern Atlantic region. That is where this ship was going for its seven years or so of existence. But on one unfortunate day, November 30th of 1925, the Cotopaxi vanished. It is, but it's just a nice bit of American history that, you know, ties into the ship, you know, and people don't realize, you know, that what was going on, the war drive and end of World War One. But uh, uh, after, obviously, after it was built 19, you know, this is like final years and then there was no need for it because the war was over. Uh, it was sold to Clinchfield Navigational Company and it started basically a route between Charleston, South Carolina uh, to Havana, Cuba. That was one of the primary routes it was carrying coal uh, between Charleston and Havana. And it was uh, basically in, so now we're going to fast forward a little bit to, uh, this is November 29th, late November of uh, 1925. It was in one of these trips, it was taking to Havana. Uh, and it uh, basically started its route and it was November 30th. It basically encountered a massive storm that had swum, swept across the Florida Peninsula out into the Atlantic and the Cotopaxi ran right into it. Indeed, the Miami Herald on November 30th, 1925, reported 14 inches of rain that day and a proper tropical disturbance overhead. That disturbance would soon sweep over the Cotopaxi. It wasn't like a hurricane. It was intense, but it wasn't that bad. But what a lot of people don't realize, and this kind of echoes to uh, another lesson that people might not realize is, you know, all the the innovations at sea, safety requirements that the Coast Guard requires is all based on past lessons we've learned the hard way. Things have gone wrong. And this is no this is no different because this is, you know, the depression basically in the twenties. Uh and this ship, they were basically at port in Charleston. Uh it was basically neglected. They're saving the the, co the company was basically trying to save money. They're trying to craft new hatch covers for the cargo holds. They hadn't finished doing those when they were ordered to, to go on its trip. So normally, if it was a calm, peaceful trip, it wouldn't have been an issue. But it went to sea with basically several leaking hatch covers, some missing altogether, and then also just tarps to lay over the cargo holes. Now, the problem there is high winds, high seas, you start taking on water, uh, it's going to get heavier, it's going to change its center of gravity, become unstable, and they'll be prone to rolling and capsizing. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, basically December 1st, early morning, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. or so. It's, we don't really know exactly the sinking time. We just know November 30th, late in the afternoon, evening, they put an SOS saying they were basically taking on water and they were having problems. Uh, and then that was the last they heard of it. So no trace it was ever found. But we have, you know, again, a lot of people think it just disappeared. Uh, and that's an easy answer. If you don't go looking for anything, of course it disappears. But if you go looking for it, you'll find things. This is a theme that Michael is going to repeat again and again, and it's one that I love. As a fan of the supernatural, it is easy for people like me 
who believe in things like this, like I do, to enjoy the tantalizing answer, the exciting supernatural answer, ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, whatever, strangeness, however you want to identify that. But Michael puts it so beautifully. That is the easy answer. You can fill in the blank and go, I don't know, ghosts. It fell through a portal in space-time. Who knows? That, that weirdly is the easier answer. Somehow, the idea of thinking of a paranormal reason is just a cop-out, then rather than accepting something far more human, tragedy, heartbreak, the, the sort of random things that lead to situations like this happening. And thanks to Michael, generations of mythologizing about the Cotopaxi is over. A tropical disturbance hit, a cut cost led to an exposure on the ship, water flooded in, and the boat was lost, and all of its occupants were as well. For decades, it was never officially heard from, but it didn't just vanish into thin air. It went somewhere, right? Well, where did it go? Uh, that's We actually found there's a large wreck off St. Augustine that this kind of cues into where I came into the story was uh, when I moved to Florida uh, in 99, 2000, I was kind of very curious about trying to identify new shipwrecks, uh, wrecks that uh, you know, people might've been dying for decades, but they didn't know what it was. And this is a great example of that because this is a, a large wreck about 40 miles off St. Augustine. People have been diving it, fishing it for years. Um, they call it the bear wreck. I don't know why they call it the bear wreck. That's just the local name. Like bear? Like a, are you saying B-E-A-R? B-E-A-R, bear wreck. Why? It could have been named after a fishing boat, the bear. I, uh, sure. Someone's nickname. The way that shipwrecks get their nicknames, it runs the gamut uh, of why they call them certain things. So uh, this is something I just, it's been lost to history. What, who actually found it first and why they named it that. It just is kind of echoed through history, though, that's been called the bear wreck locally. It had been, how, how, do you know how long it had been there? Because I, I read somewhere that it was like the 1980s. Is that accurate? Yeah, people were diving at uh, late 80s, probably even early. People were probably fishing it in the 60s. Uh, so, again, who actually found it first? Because a lot of times when people find a wreck and they want to fish it, they keep it secret for a while because that's your honey hole, right? It's That's where you want to go. You catch all the big fish, and this is a big wreck. So that's – yeah, we're never going to know Let's who actually it. found it first. So we really don't know how long it had been in that location. I mean, one could presume it had washed up at some time between, you know, the wreck itself and then sometime in later, but we don't know. There wasn't like a day when it appeared, right? Well, we do it know. It was. That it, we just don't know how it on record. 25, right. So, <laughs> so what happens is I dive this wreck, and the first thing I do when I dive any new wreck is I take notes. I try to figure out what kind of vessel it is. Is it a sailing ship? Is it a steamship? Is it diesel-powered, triple expansion engine? What kind of engine it has? How many how many screws, how many propellers does it have? Uh, the dimensions, length, width. Uh, you basically find all these diagnostic features and all these notes that will help you narrow down a suspect for this wreck. And this one was pretty easy because the, the size was almost spot on. The orientation, uh, the, the basically the layout, all the machinery is very, the very stern. Uh, so it, it kind of matched the builder plans of the Cotopaxi. And then we actually found the insurance records for it. And we found basically the SOS, the, the position, the radio, you know, when they did the radio SOS, they gave the position, it's less than 40 miles away from this, this wreck site. So they were still obviously bucking the storm. So they're probably going right towards it. And it's right on the course too. So we know the position, we know they were, which direction they're traveling in. They're traveling towards Savannah. So two more hours, it would have crossed right over the spot. And 
lo and behold, that's what we have. So we have all the evidence is lines up. The all the dimensions, uh, all the features on the wreck, the position, uh, and we actually found we actually found artifacts that we can identify to outfitters uh, that provided basically provide all the hardware for the vessel uh, out around the Detroit area, Michigan. So everything is we haven't we haven't found like a bell or anything that has a name Cotopaxi on it. But this is 99.9% sure Cotopaxi because there's also not any other shipwreck that looks anything like this within 60 miles of this wreck. So it's pretty unique in that regard. It's amazing that you didn't, I mean, in my mind, if you if you tell me this story or if you if you write up a fictionalized version of this story, the easiest thing to assume is what you just said at the end there, that you find a bell or you find something that says that this is what this is. And it's it's even more incredible that you were able to sort of lay these two pieces of information on top of each other and go, this is the, this is the thing we know exists. And, the, and I mean, that it reminds me not to be dark, but it reminds me a little bit of how like unidentified, like Jane Doe's and John Doe's are identified as you sort of take those critical pieces of information about uh, remains that you find. And then you take the critical information about a missing person and you're able to, to put those pieces together and say, this is the sort of outline. This is the facts that we know for sure. And it's, you can put them together and say, this is, we believe that person. Is is that something that you experienced? That's a, the great analogy is, you know, we approach this like a cold case murder. Uh, and you're basically digging up all information, try to fit all the pieces. And you're also trying to, my, I guess my scientific background has lent, lent itself very well to this because I'm very methodical about how you approach it. And you're basically trying to set up a case where the public or whoever else, your peers are the jury, and you're trying to shoot holes into your own theory. Uh, and when you can't, when it's obviously there's no nothing that contradicts your theory and everything supports it, that you feel confident that what your basically your supposition is accurate. So uh, exactly, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to find all the data, all the information, all the pieces to basically put the puzzle together. And that's what we have done here. So uh, that's you know, the Cotopaxi. I found Michael's story actually here through the news. In late winter of 2020, January, February, Michael was finally able to share the good news. Their exploration was documented on a show called Shipwreck Secrets, and when that episode was about to air, Michael was interviewed all over the place about his work, about the Cotopaxi, and about how he and his team were able to identify this ship. A mystery of nearly a hundred years, one that sparked so many theories and myths, solved at last. But I love this little detail. Even though it was announced in early 2020, Michael knew or at least suspected that that wreck was the Cotopaxi for over a decade. Well, actually, it, it, it was, we had mentioned and we told people about this being the Cotopaxi years beforehand. I, I dove this probably the first time I dove it was probably 2006 or seven. Uh, and then I started looking into it and it was that year uh, that I identified it. But it wasn't until, uh, again, coming back to the, the TV aspect of it, there was a documentary production team that wanted to do a, a series and it aired in, 20, in 2019. And leading up to that series, this was one of the big stories they wanted to, to you know, this was kind of a, you know, this is gift wrap for him. This is all with a you know bow tie on it. So they loved it. And it made, you know, obviously made a lot of headlines around the world because even though we've been telling everyone it's a Cotopaxi, uh, if no one's listening, you know, that's the problem. You know, other divers understood it was a Cotopaxi, but it wasn't until the media gets involved and you have an audience that it gets some traction and then, okay, now it's officially the Cotopaxi. So... 
how does it feel to be kind of a mythbuster? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's so. I feel like you're you're in a rare class of people who get to actually take something because obviously this has such a it it has it captured some part of people's imagination. It's obviously in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It has this sort of narrative around it that it's this mysterious lost ship in the Bermuda Triangle. But it's very rare that that someone can take a thing that has so many mysteries to it, or I guess not that many mysteries, but but you know, it's got this sort of folklore narrative around it, and you can go, actually, there's a very grounded, very real, you know, sequence of events that happened here. What does it feel like for you personally to sort of be that MythBuster? I, I kind of I love it because I think you know being able to explain something versus just saying ah, it's the triangle, it's just disappeared. I just I think that's a cop out. I think it's lazy. It's I think it's not as ironic as it sounds. I don't think it's very creative because I think usually the truth is always better than fiction because the drama behind the story and and knowing that the port agent uh, for the company that sent the ship out was the father of the captain. So he basically sent his son out to sea, knowing the ship was not seaworthy. Uh, so there's all these great layers that people aren't even aware about, and I think that's so much better. The history is richer than just aliens or Atlantis or whatever other bullshit you want to you know, throw at. And that's why I always said that I call the Bermuda Triangle the bullshit triangle because that's what it is. It's just it's just an excuse <laughs> for people that don't want to actually, you know, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of people want an easy answer. And a lot of times easy answers are wrong or incorrect. And sometimes the, the correct answers are hard to explain or take longer to explain, but it's still the correct. So what do you want? You want an easy, wrong answer? You want the correct answer? It takes a little bit of explanation. And that's, unfortunately, I think we see that in society these days. People are very quick and eager. Uh, we see it on, you know, whether it be false, you know, stuff, stories on the internet or in the news and stuff. Like, and that was one of the things that kind of drove me nuts too, is we are trying to get the story out there, probably about 2012, 2013, you might be aware of it. There's all these internet hoaxes going around about the code of Paxos found off Cuba by the Cuban, you know, Coast Guard. It's been floating for 70 years and it's a ghost ship. And we're like, no, no, it's bullshit. You know, oh, so there's people fishing over it off the coast of yeah. northern Florida. It was just fake. It's just, you know, people were just bored and making these cool, you know, these little stories on the internet to see if it can get people to bite on it. And that's, you know, that's, you, you see that time and time again. And, and, you know, so we being able to identify the Cotopaxi and, you know, obviously tell the story. And we got to meet uh, basically the, the grandson of the ship's captain. I mean, again, it's it's people. It's not just a thing. It's not just a, you know, a Bermuda Triangle is not just this weird mystery and the ships aren't just a thing. There's there's people that went missing uh, and their stories is there's a human element to this. And people forget about that a lot as well. So to be able to bring closure to the families that uh, they didn't just disappear. You know, there is a, you know, we can tell their story now. The truth is just better. Michael tells me a few more stories of discoveries and their incredible truth. He tells me about a missing ship called the Sandra, which disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, only to be identified later based on the chemicals that were within the ship's cargo. There were still traces of it. They were able to confirm it, and another Bermuda Triangle mystery was off the table. He also tells me of a pilot who was lost at sea. He found his airplane. And he also tells me about that pilot's wife-to-be from before he disappeared, how that wife-to-be never got to meet her husband-to-be's family. 
until Michael's work aired and brought them together for the first time. It's a very beautiful, emotional story. It makes me emotional just thinking about these people never knew each other for decades, and they were finally able to connect these two halves of their lives together. And most stunningly, Michael was a part of the team that accidentally discovered the wing of the space shuttle Challenger, which suddenly and tragically exploded over the Atlantic Ocean in 1986. The Challenger explosion is one of the most traumatizing events of the 1980s, and Michael just randomly discovered a fragment of it out in the ocean. That must be so satisfying for you to get to be able to sort of fill in those blanks for people's lives and their histories. It, it's definitely enriching. Uh, it's Again, it's made my diving have purpose. And uh, again, like, you know, when we found the shuttle, the Challenger wing last year, you know, that, uh, you know, it was that a big was, thing. You were part of that? Yeah, we found that by accident. We were the ones that found it. I so, read that story. I was talking about that story with everybody. I I, I had no idea I was talking to you about I, I that. That was so surreal. That was a that was an incredible day to, to hear that story. Please talk about that. Yeah, no, we were actually out there looking for another aircraft and stumbled upon that. Uh, and we first started looking at it as really bad visibility, but we started looking, you know, analyzing it and it seemed aircraft-ish, you know, it has the properties, but then we realized this is not what we're looking for and this is something odd about this. So I actually have a friend that uh, I've been diving with, <clears throat> excuse me, a friend I've been diving with who's a two-time shuttle astronaut. And there's a couple of items we saw there. And I sent him a picture. It's like, is this what I think it is? Because, you know, I was under the impression that they recovered all the remains of the challenge they could everything, find. Everything, yeah. This is not a small piece. This is basically the whole left wing that we found. So uh, interesting. That was a nice exercise going through the archives. And, you know, this is pre-computers. Everything's printed out. It's just, it's very interesting. In 1986, right? So uh, I remember where I was that day. So that, for me, it's been even more touching because when you're a part of the history when you know you where you're at in an instant i remember exactly where i was watching on tv as a kid in high school that uh was amazing so many things are resting beneath our waves even things that nobody even knew were lost challenger was found by accident but what about everything else that's still out there is there a wreck that we haven't talked about or a, a, a mystery that you solved or a, a ship you put together that, that is your proudest? Is there one that we haven't talked about that that you would say you're proudest or is it one of the ones we've already sort of touched on? I, I think they all are. I mean, a lot of the aircraft I'm proud of because again, it, it, to identify the actual air, not the type of aircraft, but basically the serial number of that aircraft. I mean, that's that's a usually a, a, you know, a task that takes you know a lot of luck and just a lot of diligence. And I've, I felt really good about that. I just, I think all of them, I mean, but that's what I do. I, I don't really dwell on it. Once I can identify something and I'm sure of it, I move on to the next one. Cause there's, I mean, this is a, a lifetime of lifetimes of work out there. There's, you know, tens of thousands of shipwrecks uh, that have not been explored or identified. So I got a lot of work ahead of me. <laughs> uh, are there other, I mean, well, you've answered the sort of this question for me as I'm like, there are other shipwrecks, right? There's other things we don't know what they are around Florida's coast that we we still don't really know. Exactly. That's what, you know, the season two, it, when it comes out uh, November 14th, you're going to see there's 12 episodes and each episode we're diving on a bunch of new things and we identify quite a few really new cool wrecks that uh, I think people will be interested in. So, uh, and then there's, you know, projects overseas where there's just, there's just so much out there. I mean, three quarters of the planet is, is water. So there's, Obviously, a lot of real estate to work with, uh, a lot of shipwrecks hiding out there. There's a lot of shipwrecks out there, a lot of stories left to be completed, and a lot of questions left to be answered. Myths, 
ready to be busted. Michael is ready to fill in the gaps of those stories along with his team to bring that closure and bring the truth to the surface. The Bermuda Triangle is certainly a good story, but Michael is here to remind you, the truth is out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad to be here with you to tell you about this incredible real-world work that's being done to solve these myths that everyone has so much fondness for, but, you know, the truth is just better than fiction. But thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, find us on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell me what you like about the show and look out for some posts from Wait Fright Minutes about the stuff that we're working on, the stuff that we've seen and enjoy your Halloween with us on social media. Thank you to Michael Barnett for his time. I loved chatting with him. I told him if he ever needs some reporter who has no idea what he's doing out on a boat to come bug him with a microphone out on the ocean, then then uh, I'm, I'm his man. But <laughs> I would really love to see his work up close and personal because it's it's fascinating to the little marine biologist, ocean explorer in, in my heart. So thank you to Michael Barnett. His show is called The Bermuda Triangle Into Cursed Waters. The new season on the History Channel starts November 14th. Not an ad. Go check it out. Thank you to Michael for all of his time. All the music used in this episode was originally composed, unless it was in the two clips that you heard from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I do not own the rights to that movie, but I wanted you to hear those clips so that they could fill in a little texture for this story. I've included links to those videos so you can go and watch them. And hey, if you haven't seen that movie, it's a great Halloween watch. Not the spookiest story, but a classic sort of I'm losing my mind type story. And hey, you can't go wrong with Steven Spielberg, my guy. All right, folks, next week we'll be coming out the day before Halloween. Oh, my gosh. October 30th. I can't believe Halloween is finally here. I will be spending the night of October 30th probably going to see a late night movie. And on Halloween, I will be handing out candy in costume. I'm very much looking forward to it. But if you need a little extra spookiness to your Halloween. We're going to be doing what I call the first annual Wait Fright Minutes Halloween special. We're going to be doing a variety of spooky tales. I'm going to tell you about some graves that I have discovered around Florida. I'm going to tell you some spooky stories for myself and have a very, you know, I'm going to try to make it a little immersive, you know, some 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 spooky sounds to add to your Halloween spirit. So I will see you on October 30th and then I won't I won't go into it too much, but starting in November into December up to the holiday special, we are going to be doing a very, very, very exciting mini series that I cannot wait to show you. Oh my gosh. We're going thrift shopping. Trust me. It's going to be a great time until Halloween week. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Go Gator and Mighty the Water. And hey, have a very happy last few days before Halloween. Happy Halloween. See you next Monday for the Halloween special. I'm working on that. I got to get that right for next week. (laughs) Have a good week.